I'm your host, Marina Well, and thank you for tuning in for the last episode in the series, The Asian Aspiration, The Podcast. I'm almost sad, but the joys of putting this together kind of outweighs that, so I'm more grateful than saddened by it. To our lovely audience, thank you so much for joining us each week. We hope you learned a lot. Um, to cap this series up, we are putting together a lovely three-course meal, I think is what it would be, so sit back and enjoy. But as always, first of all, to get started, I have the lovely Emily van der Merwe, co-author of the book, joining us here. Hi, Emily. <laughs> Hi. So it's our last hoorah here. How are you feeling? Um, relieved and sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. It was fun. Wasn't it fun trying our hand at making a podcast? I know. It was amazing. I was terrified in the beginning and sometimes still i'm like oh goodness i do not know what's going to come out of my mouth but hey here we are <laughs> 10 plus episodes in so it's been an exciting journey yeah it was a at one point it was just a dream and now it's a reality <laughs> so emily to get us started can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to write a book Firstly, I think if you asked me a year ago, no, just a little bit more than a year ago before we started. Um, so we started this book, I guess the idea for it started uh, long ago, if you, ask, if you ask Greg, but I only got involved around this time last year, mm -hmm. April, May. Um, and if you asked me before then, or you told me that I would be writing a book, um, I, I wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't necessarily have a have believed you but um no the process and and some people have asked me this um <laughs> i feel like it i feel like a um, instagram influencer now <laughs> a lot of people have asked me <laughs> no like one person i swear one person has asked me um what it's like and um and honestly it's 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 not that bad really? <laughs> you'd expect you, you'd, you'd expect it to be a lot of hard work of course it is uh -huh. And, and, and for a lot of people, writing a book is a multi-year process. It's, um, it's like writing a doctor's, a, a PhD dissertation. Mm -hmm. um, but um, Greg and I have this in common, I think, uh, the fact that we, um, we work really quickly. We, we, we prefer to get something done even if it's not 100% perfect. I don't know if I should say that, but anyway. Um, so, so we, we, we really just put our heads down and, um, and finished this book in a couple of months. Mm -hmm. um, and the process was very interesting. Um, people also asked me, um, admittedly only two, but people have asked me what it's like writing, like co-authoring a book. So what's like, yeah. what, what is it like working with someone? And, um, and that's also very interesting. It's, it's, it's very rewarding working collaboratively um, as long as you're, your technology technological systems allow <laughs> um and, um and you know sharepoint updates and that kind of thing but um google drive doesn't fail you but no it's very interesting that, um my a friend actually asked me i'm not making this up someone did ask me a, a, a while ago what's it like writing with someone and i said it's like a fully refereed ping pong match because um, <laughs> you you just bounce things around, and sometimes, um, for the most part, you you bouncing ideas around, and mm -hmm. you bouncing things you've written around, which is great. And you've got two sets of eyes or more, um, maybe four sets of eyes, um, 
all applying themselves to something which sounds pretty chaotic but it's actually not at all if it's mm -hmm. if it's well processed i mean well coordinated right. but but sometimes things things go wrong and and for example version control or or, or whatever and 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 then it's a bit of a nightmare but but for the most part we worked together so well and um so i, I think especially on the on the trip we did around asia which was our month-long oh. intensive research trip um it's 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 insane to think about it now but but our, what our schedule was we, we would we would literally we'd spend all day from like eight in the morning until five or six in the evening in meetings um, and and in between, you know, driving around through these crazy, crazy congested cities like Shanghai or or Bangkok, um, getting from one meeting to the next, making notes as we go along, and then get back to the hotel in the evening, and and, and start writing again, and and um, put all of those notes into a document, email it around. <laughs> um, get things back to people you've interviewed to right. you know or get extra stats or do all of the all of the desktop research yeah. um and that goes on into the night and then you go to bed and then the next morning you're up again you know between five and six to prepare for that day's meetings and to and to finish any writing you didn't do from the day before and then over weekends when the meetings stop um it's it's sitting down and and hammering it out almost um mm -hmm. i think one of my favorite memories as us um this happened twice we would spend about but we would take a break for a day which doesn't mean take a break <laughs> it doesn't mean stop doing stop interviewing people so the one was the one time was in kyoto which is i think my absolute favorite city um apart from um ho chi minh city um in asia so um we were we were in kyoto and in this beautiful quaint little hotel and um we took our saturday saturday and we just sat across from each other at a at a dining room table and and just worked through every chapter of the book 17 chapters in total and we would do this once a week just go through every chapter each one of us to to update it to to reread it um you know as we go along and then um and and by the end of the day, I think um, this particular day in Kyoto, at around three or four, I got up and I and I went to see a um, a concert um, by the Kyoto Symphony Orchestra, which was something I mm -hmm. desperately wanted to do. And I went and I got there, and um, I don't know if it's story time, but it is now story time. <laughs> and I got there, and um, and I I realized I couldn't pay with card because the my card my South African card wouldn't work in for some reason at the concert venue and then um and and then they told me um oh there's an atm somewhere up the street you can go and this is not like just before the concert starting and i don't, don't have any cash on me so i go and look for the atm it's crazy i can't find it i find eventually find some form of an, AT, of an atm it's all in japanese it doesn't accept foreign cards it's just crazy and i run back and it's raining and i run back to the concert hall and i'm like please just let me in like it's not like please just let me in and they and eventually they say okay you can go in and i never paid for this ticket <laughs> wow so anyway yeah so so anyway that has nothing to do with your question um but the other the other example i wanted to give is um an, another saturday morning or a full day actually of doing exactly this going through all the chapters again 
Um, and this time I found a very nice little coffee shop and this was in Hanoi, which is also a very nice city. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and on, on that particular occasion, I, I, um, discovered something that's now gone viral, <laughs> not by my um, efforts, but anyway, a Vietnamese, um, a whipped coconut coffee. And, um, and it's, <laughs> I wish I'd, I'd, I'd put it up on Instagram back then because um, I might've been <laughs> one of the first. Anyway, I didn't answer your question at all, but there we go. <laughs> so basically what I'm getting is writing a book is not that bad, but it's a lot of hard work, sometimes quite fun, uh, a lot of work over weekends and rereading and reading and rereading <laughs> and passing across, but it's all fun. Did I get that right? Exactly. Why did you write a book about that? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> all right. So Emily, in thinking more about sort of the, I guess, the process of writing a book and thinking about even books in general, do you think that it's still a good way to get your message across today? Um, that's a very good question. Um, we had a webinar book launch a few weeks ago and um and the presenter asked Greg this exact question well he asked it a little bit more savagely he asked so did anyone read your last book <laughs> um but he was actually referring to to the our target audience which um as as you might know is is uh, policy makers we mm-hmm. this book and and the pre- previous books by this by the foundation it it tends to target um leaders and policymakers across the continent mm-hmm. so it's pretty it's it's pretty essential then that those people read it right mm-hmm. um and and you'd hope they do but reality is policymakers have a lot to do and um and there's a lot of competition on the market mm-hmm. for thing for our t- uh, for people's attention and for yeah. things to read um and so so yes i do have I do have some concerns over whether a book is the best way of getting a message across. What I do think it is the best method for is, is getting the research done and educating yourself. Mm. Now, obviously it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a cumbersome way of, of doing that, of, um, of immersing yourself in a topic, but it's an excellent way. Mm. Um, and, and I, for one can say that I, I, I've learned a lot, like, a lot doesn't cover it. Cover it. I learned. <laughs> I, I I I wanted to say a shitload, but anyway, I really learned a lot in making this. Uh, I mean, um, writing this book. So so that's great. And then you can use that knowledge um, to to help you you just sharpen your message because there are so many other ways of getting the message across. And and that brings us to the fact that we are. It brings us to this podcast, which was the first thought was how can we condense this book down to a more, you know, um, bite-sized or um, what's the right word, um, digestible format. And that's mm-hmm. this podcast. And then secondly, the documentary, um, which we're planning to make, um, which which should get should be out by by the end of the year. So so yeah, they, it's 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 a process um, of of complementing complementing different formats i think reach different audiences now that you definitely make a good point over there and i'm excited to see the documentary when it comes out 
um, or I guess help with it. Uh, who knows? I don't know. Uh, but thinking more about, uh, let's say, what's in the book right now, um, why do you think that maybe some of the lessons from Asia uh, don't quite hold? And even, is it that useful to look at another region, right? So first it was African countries almost looking to and then eventually becoming sort of dependent on the West. And now it's the Far East. Is How much usefulness is there in looking at another region and developing or crafting our sort of development uh, trajectory, if I can call it that? Um, yeah, so so another question we repeatedly asked ourselves when we were writing this book is why aren't these lessons learned? Mm -hmm. If, if um, research teams or study groups have been going visiting Asia for the past 40 years trying to get lessons, why, why have they seemingly not been transferred? And it's a question we look at in the introduction because it's a good place to start. But um, uh, we, we look at things like like obviously there's a cultural divide and there's a language barrier and and there's a tendency to favor western models of course there always is um but even even in this this new era of of buzzwords like south south learning and um you know what whatever else decolonization um there's yeah there's still there's still the tendency to look at at what the west has done Mm -hmm. um, and to see that as first prize and and I mean of course I reject that um, and this that's one of the things we we try to do with this book is retell those stories in a way that um, that's new um, mm -hmm. first of all and that's applicable um, it's it, you know a narrative is something you have to continuously revise um, because history is not stagnant history is something that changes with the times um, and um and yeah and that's what we try to do mm, no, that's awesome and uh sort of one final question which really is uh, came from a discussion from both of us really and i'll just use your words because i love them so much but um in thinking about you know if, if we're looking ahead emily and we're thinking let's say you know 15 20 years uh, um, 20 years out when we look at the book right now the lessons it teaches what we can and maybe should not learn from Asia as well. What do you think are some of the things that uh, we might be wrong about? What do you think are some things that we may very well be quite right about? That's a very interesting question. And, and um, <laughs> I've, I've asked myself the way because I'm, I'm quite concerned about things like social media um, uh, footprints. The mm. fact that we are all over in little pieces, we're all over the internet and all over the world. And I, I was thinking about if I had to re-listen to this podcast even six months from now, would I be terribly embarrassed about what I said? <laughs> and it might well be, because that goes to the point I just made about um about history being revisionist in its in its very uh, core. But um but in six months' time I might well listen to this podcast and think what on earth were you thinking or saying but um and and the same goes for the book because you never know but in terms of things i think we'd be right about um it's definitely definitely the environmental impact question and that's why I'm, i was so excited about last week's episode that we yeah. finally got to tackle this thing um there's no question in in 10 or 15 or 20 years time it's going to be 
so much more pressing. I don't want to say even more pressing. It's going to be the most pressing mm. um, um, and urgent issue. And we're going to look back at these conversations and these and this book and think we might we should have made more of it. We should have we should have looked almost exclusively at the environmental question mm. and about uh, and at how Asia did it wrong. Um, so that's thing. That's one thing I I almost know for certain. Um, I I can't tell you what we'd be wrong about. Um, um, we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, and that we will. And also, it's not the end, right? I mean, we're waiting for you know the next bestseller from Emily Van der Merwe. It's possible. No pressure, but you know, it's still possible. Uh, but anyway, th- thank you very. Wait, 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 wait! Before you move on, what about your bestseller? Why don't you tell us about the book you're working on? Well, that's that, that, that's a good question. So uh, one of the books that, uh, of course, it usually starts with uh, Greg, uh, but we're looking at the the question of aid and how aid has been used and hasn't been used properly. And I think the main idea, right, is this idea that a lot of tools around aid have been focused on uh, how much, how money should be spent rather than on evaluating how well it is spent. And I think that's one of the things that this book would be, the, I don't think, well, I know that that's one of the things that this book will be getting at. Um, and so looking through the narrative of countries that may have done it well, countries that may not have done it well, and even countries that we have a chance to get it right with. Um, and so I'm really excited to talk to a lot of practitioners, a lot of you know topical experts, policy experts in this space to learn a bit more about you know why we do some of the things we do, especially the ones that we know haven't worked for the past God knows 50 years. Um, and so it should be an exciting journey, and I'm excited to have some tale to tell, like you are telling with yours right now. So yeah, yay! I can't <laughs> wait to interview you on a podcast in oh a few months. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a bit hard to imagine, but uh, I guess we'll see. We'll see. I'm excited though. I really am. Um, to, to <laughs> experience, and you know, it it crystallizes a lot of things that I find quite interesting when it comes to international development. <laughs> So to close this series off, we of course had to bring Greg back in. Greg is the director of the Brentes Foundation and also co-author of the book, The Asian Aspiration. Greg, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you here again. Uh, So we just had a conversation with Emily uh, before, and one of the things we thought it would be great to get your insight on is if we are to look, Greg, about 15 years out, what do you think might be some of the things that uh, the book would be right about and also some things that we may be wrong about? Well, of course, 15 years is a very long time in politics and economics in today's world when technology drives tremendous changes in a very short space of time. Um, I think even now, if we had to write the book, just six months after it was finalized, I think we would obviously include something about the danger of pandemics. Um, But of course, it's a short-term reality. I think the longer-term trends in global politics and as in global economics and security remain much the same. Uh, Globalization is around in terms of the freer movement of trade and people and data and technology. Um, It's going to be altered by things like COVID, but these are probably short-term alterations. We might see a change in consumer spending patterns, uh, see more reversion to local industry over global industry. Um, But the basics in terms of success uh, 
the basics in terms of the need for education, the need for skills, the need for pragmatic policy, uh, the need for uh, effective healthcare systems, the need to look ahead and not be a prisoner of your past, and perhaps more so than ever before, and this is particularly in the light of COVID, yeah. uh, the importance of turning crises into opportunity, which Asia has absolutely excelled in. Yeah. I think we possibly would have more stress on the environment. Uh, we, we do stress it in the book, um, but it is clearly an issue uh, around which the world is pivoting. And I think we would probably also look uh, to see how uh, in 15 years time, how Africa, because the book is really focused on, on Africa's ability to learn some of the lessons from Asia, how Africa was able to absorb some of these and act on them. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely a good point. And it would be interesting to see, but you know, as I was saying to Emily, there's more room to write novels. I mean, one of the things you've heard from a lot of people is they really enjoy this book, especially the format that it was presented in. It's different from the more sort of dense and get boggled down in things. And it just made the, the message quite clear to people. Uh, so thank you very much. I think, the, yeah. I think the format of various case studies uh, works very well, and then yeah. translating them to, into different African experiences and we, we, we puzzled when we started this book do we write it thematically in other words by issue you know, globalization exports trade multinational companies importance of policy and so on or do we tell the story of each of these countries and we decided on the latter approach the country specific approach because they all teach us different things they they have they have different reasons for their success some of the the basics are all the same really mm -hmm. but they start at different times their reform process um uh, happened because of their different strengths so it proves the importance of of differentiation in this process that africa is not going to have one particular pathway but some of the basics are going to be the same where you're Thailand, it's really about a services industry. Where you, where it's Vietnam, it's really a combination of of agriculture, getting the agricultural piece right, and then moving up into light industry through SEZs and so on and so forth. But in in Africa, we're going to take some of these lessons, I would hope, and apply them within our different contexts. So success in Africa would probably look like an increasingly differentiated continent, just like Asia. Although the common feature is this incredible growth, which is shared between countries, no matter their, their backgrounds and characteristics. I think in Africa, you'll see hopefully common growth, uh, but different pathways to, to prosperity. Next up, we caught up with a long-serving member of parliament and leader of the second largest opposition party in Tanzania, Zito Kabwe. Zito, thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Um, you're a long-standing friend of ours. And one of the things that um, I wanted to talk with you about was uh, sort of your intro in the book. So basically, you dubbed this book as a must-read for policymakers, donors, and anyone interested in Africa's future. Can you tell us a little bit about why that is for you and what are some of the insightful things from the book that you picked up? I said that because um, always we have been uh, trying 
to see how can Africa get out uh, of poverty. And uh, Asia has been a very, very uh, 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 far reference mm -hmm. uh, as far as Africa's development trajectory is concerned. And uh, as it was very well put in the book, in the, in the introduction part, the, in 1960, in most of the Asian countries and African countries, we are almost the same. A very good example is always given between Ghana and Malaysia, and even between Tanzania, then uh, Tanganyika and Malaysia. Uh, the GDP was, was, was the same. Uh, um, uh, GDP per capita, the income level was the same. Yeah. But now these countries are in uh, higher development levels yeah. than in Africa. So the examples given in the book uh, on uh, different uh, stages and places uh, uh, are very, very important from, from most of the countries, Vietnam, mm -hmm. China, Malaysia, uh, Thailand, and the like. So that's why I said it's a mass read. Mm -hmm. for uh, policymakers in Africa and donors as well, because there is the issue of the uh, of the foreign aid in the book. Yeah, okay. And so uh, the other thing really, so Asia has come up a lot in conversation and sort of uh, when we think about COVID-19 pandemic, right? One of the biggest issues that we are facing on the continent is this idea of the mountain debt. Um, and a lot of people are talking about, you know, the idea of a moratorium, debt cancellation. Um, what are some of your thoughts on, you know, the, the debt burden on the African continent um, and basically how to deal with that? We had the debt cancellation in, in the 2000, in the year 2000, 2000, 2001, 2003. Yes. during the times of the highly indebted uh, poor countries, uh, HIPIC, and many African countries uh, where their debts were, were cancelled by the Paris Club and uh, other bilateral donors. So this is not the first time uh, Africa is calling for debt cancellation. Mm -hmm. And maybe it will not be the last time. So the most important thing first is to ask ourselves, what have we uh, what have we done with the debt cancellation of the of the previous uh, two decades? Hmm. Uh, countries went went in a binge of borrowing. Uh, you have a country like Zambia now with uh, massive debt, spending a lot of its resources on debt service. Tanzania, uh, we do not have uh, large debts as compared to Zambia, but we are spending. Uh, around $300 million a month hmm. to, to service the external, external debt. And this money could have been used for uh, the investment in uh, social services like health, for example, right. with the issue of the pandemic. So I, I totally support the efforts to, to manage uh, African debt, whether it is through moratorium or the, the debt consolation or just a, a suspension of the, of the debt service. But it is very important, these efforts to go hand in hand with the, the, the accountability measures. Right. What the resources to be rescued, what will they be used for? Mm -hmm. What are the, 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 the measures to make sure that uh, we do not repeat the mistakes of the hippie. 
right. where countries just went in the binge of, uh, of, of borrowing. So that's how we should put this debate on, not only the debt cancellation or moratorium, but also the accountability part of it. How are the resources rescued will be used for the uh, uh, development of the of the African continent, especially building a robust health system, because the the COVID nineteen pandemic has taught us a big lesson that our health system in Africa is not able to handle uh, the, the crisis like this, and we have to rebuild the health system in Africa. No, that's a very good point, the accountability element. It's not something we are hearing so much of, but we really do need to ask that if we want to use, uh, make use of this sort of, uh, if we do get that, um, to make use of these grants, if I can call them that, in the way that they should be. And when we're thinking beyond uh, sort of a, a COVID world, hope, we're hoping we get to that point, but when we are looking at some of the opportunities for Africa's growth, uh, many people talk about, you know, focusing more on the African markets with the African continental free trade area. Um, what are some of your thoughts or what are your thoughts on the advantages that African countries can take when it comes to the continent or how they should be thinking about uh, trade moving forward? One thing that we learned from the book as a, as a big example is on the openness. Uh, we 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 see how Vietnam, for example, the uh, post-communist uh, Vietnam, the reformist yeah. Vietnam, used the openness to and uh, the reforms they did in um, uh, in their economic liberalization, especially the privatization, the model of the privatization they did. Yeah. Uh, but also we see uh, uh, examples from China on how they utilize their large market. So in Africa, you have the, the continent with the, the 1.3 billion people, mm -hmm. but you, you have smaller markets mm -hmm. that are not sustainable. Yeah. And uh, the inter-African trade is so low, it's uh, uh, around uh, 11%. While if you go to Asia, you have a double the, 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 the inter-Asian trade. And if you go to Europe, even uh, uh, triple that amount yeah. so trading will be very very important going forward for africa opening up the the borders mm -hmm. already we know that there are regional economic communities that have uh, opened the borders already with the free trade area like sadek like uh, south african customs union saku uh, the east african community and ECOWAS. And what is supposed to be done and through the continental free, uh, free trade area is to have a, an African-wide uh, uh, free trade agreement. And mm -hmm. I think this will be very, very important to increase trading amongst African countries and uh, be able to generate jobs. We have the, 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 the demographic challenge in Africa uh, uh, in the coming Currently, there are more than 460 million young people, uh, and I, I get this number from the from the book. Uh, but it is increasing because we have a very young population. So trading will really help to create more jobs uh, through service, and I think that's the way to go for for the African continent. 
Awesome. That's a definitely a good way to end this. Zito, once again, thank you so much for making yourself available for this conversation. We really do appreciate it. And we hope you stay well in these odd times. We are trying. I hope you stay well uh, as well. It's uh, for all of us. We have to protect ourselves and protect others as well, right? Indeed, indeed. Thank you so yeah. much, Zito. Yeah. Thank you so much. And to the final section of this episode, we thought to play a very light game of rapid fire. So what's going to happen is I'm going to call out a word or maybe a set of words, and you say the first thing that comes to mind, but you can't take longer than five seconds to respond. Are you ready? I'm ready, I think. I'm ready. Okay. Hit me. Uh, development. Slow. Learn the lessons. Vietnam. Transformation. Um... Uh, a, a train <laughs> aid useless good and bad democracy overall good <laughs> desirable <laughs> japan did it first awesome south africa big challenges but we can show the way home leadership scarce never enough of it climate change urgent a defining issue corruption a cancer Greatest achievement. Surviving this process. <laughs> Renters Foundation. Best practice. SharePoint. Awesome. Well, that's the end of our short game. Greg, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure working around the themes of the book, getting to talk to a lot of people. And so thank you for making that happen. And we look forward to more exciting content from you and from, I guess, all of us at the Renters Foundation. So thank you so much. <laughs> come to the end of the Asian Aspiration B podcast series. Thank you so much. Once again, I'm your host, Marie Noel, and it's been an absolute pleasure walking this journey with you. Emily, do you have any final words? Thank you. Thank you so much, Marie Noel, for being the best host. Wow. The hostess with the most. Oh my goodness. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> All right, folks, but it's not the end though. Not so fast. So over the coming months, the Brentis Foundation will be sharing insights from conversations with decision makers, topic experts, policy practitioners, and academics alike um, to sort of give you a peek into what's relevant, how decisions are made, um, and basically, you know, where development conversations are going. So do follow our social media handles uh, listed in the description box to stay up to date on all the exciting upcoming stuff. But also more importantly, uh, in a week from when you should be listening to this, we will be having another e-launch session. So we hope that you can join us for that as well. Um, it's around Africa Day, so do stay tuned. Until then, adios, friends. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> fantastic book. Simply groundbreaking. I think it's very important. This book I've read extremely uh, interesting absolutely stupendous fun to read very well researched just phenomenal very profound 